I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. Welcome to The Letterboxd Show, a podcast about movies from Letterboxd, the social network for film lovers. Each episode hosts Slim, that's me and Gemma, are joined by a Letterboxd friend for a chat about their top four on Letterboxd. That's the four movies they choose as their favorite films on their Letterboxd profile. We have links in the episode notes to the movies, lists, and people we talk about, so you can follow along adding those movies to your watch lists. And today, just back from Cannes, is writer, director, editor, actress, and Letterboxd member, Isabel Sandoval. Now, Isabel has just written a very thirsty essay for us about sensual cinema, which features a super horny script excerpt from her feature film, Lingua Franca, which premiered at Venice Days, part of the Venice Film Festival in the Before Times, otherwise known as 2019. Isabel's films also include Apparition, and from earlier this year, the Miu Miu Women's Tale number 21, Shangri-La. Isabel's four letterbox favourites are Hiroshima Mon Amour, Jean Dielman, In the Mood for Love, and Punch Drunk Love. Isabel has not reviewed any of these films on her letterbox profile, so she is here with us right now on the Letterbox Show to explain her choices. I feel like I opened several episodes this season with admitting something very brave. So I'm going to do it again right now. I'm going to admit something. I had to Google Mm -hmm. French New Wave after seeing Hiroshima (laughs) Mon Amour. Wow. So thank you, Isabel. Listen, there's going to be people just like me that are listening that are having their, their world opened up. What was your introduction to the style of filmmaking growing up like how did you discover movies like this um it's funny because i grew up you know i was born and raised in the philippines and it's not really you know like access to world cinema and foreign films uh is not easy to put it mildly and Mm -hmm. like growing up i remember one of my earliest childhood memories was my mom took me to a movie palace that's what we called those um movie theaters that were built before the war and they were, you know, massive and enormous and quite ornate in um, their interiors. Although I was born well after that, (laughs) Um, she took me to watch when I was four, this comedy movie starring the Filipino Charlie Chaplin and his young kid. Um, I don't remember much about the movie itself, but I was just enthralled by, you know, this massive image being projected into, into the screen. And, that's that got me started um, with my love affair with cinema. And at that time, you know, I really only had uh, access to like Filipino melodramas and like genre movies, like slapsticks, mm-hmm. slapstick movies, and horror, and the few Hollywood, you know, blockbusters um, that would get shown there. But it so it wasn't until college when. You know, interestingly enough, that w- that's when piracy became rampant in the Philippines and in a lot of you know Asian countries. That I remember the very first 
art house pirated DVD I saw being sold in these stalls, you know, in the streets of Cebu was Beware of the Holy Whore by Rainer Werner mm. Fassbender. <laughs> and, what? You know, what an introduction. That, yeah, I, I saw, <laughs> you know, pirated DVDs of films by Kurosawa, you know, Hitchcock. I remember seeing M um, by Fritz Lang. And that's, you know, how I got introduced to the work of the masters and our international auteurs. And there was also, you know, around that time when Wong Kar Wai rose to prominence. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that was in the early 90s. He had Chunking Express that was shortly followed by Happy Together. And of course, in 2000, he had what is considered his masterpiece, in the mood for love. Which we will get to. Yes. But I've got something stuck in my head now about um, about sensual slapstick as a genre. <laughs> Did we just create that right now? Did Is we that just a, create oh. that? <laughs> <laughs> Back to Hiroshima Monomore. What a film. This is my first Alain Rene. I'm also going to be brave, slim, and admit that. Go ahead, please. It's It's been on my watch list for a long time, and it's now ticked off the list, thanks to you. I uh, What an extraordinary film. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, when, you, when we think of French New Wave, you know, the names that come to mind are Truffaut, for instance, you know, The 400 Blows, and Godard with Breathless and, you know, the 60s was a very prolific decade for him. And Alain René is actually part of the left bank of the French New Wave and that their works are characterized by maybe what we call a more austere philosophical, um, informal approach that's a stark opposite to kind of the freewheeling, very energetic, you know, frantic filmmaking um, of... Godard, for instance, and what, you know, really impressed me about Hiroshima Monomor was how, you know, formally daring it was. And for a film that was made in 1959, you know, just how modern it felt and its approach to time and memory. And the one thing that I love most about this film is how the past, you know, seemingly blurs into the present um, and that, you know, it doesn't make any clear distinction of something that happens in the present time versus a memory and how, and Rene achieves this through both visual and sound editing techniques. Like, you know, of course, when the film opens, it is the storyline of the film happens in Hiroshima. But over the course of the narrative, we are brought back to the events that happen in the small town that Emmanuel Riva, you know, lived in when she was a teenager. And she has this affair with a German soldier. And because of that, she becomes a pariah in her community and she becomes ostracized. The death of her lover and her ostracism are traumatic events in her life. And how this film is daring in the sense that, and it might be considered inelegant and gauche um, in our current moment, how it juxtaposes her personal 
trauma, you know, losing her lover, which is so devastating and traumatic for her, versus the more collective historical trauma, trauma of what happened in Hiroshima during the Second World War. Mm. As I said to start off the show, you know, I had to do some intense Googling after this because my eyes were open to, you know, a different kind of filmmaking. I had seen In the Mood for Love this year for the first time for my other podcast, 70 Millimeter. But this is kind of, everyone was saying, see In the Mood for Love, you know, blow your mind. So I don't think I was ready to experience In the Mood for Love yet when I first mm-hmm. saw it. So when after I saw this movie, I wrote in my letterbox review, like, this is my In the Mood for Love. I was, I guess I was more prepared to experience this, you know, these two lovers having this dialogue at the bar and over the course of a day, just talking about their previous life experiences and how painful it was with the backdrop of Hiroshima. I was blown away by this movie. Like the photography is out of sight in this film. The relationship between the two leads were so real. You know, you feel that Mm -hmm. kind of draw between the architect of like, I don't want to leave you. I want to spend more time with you. And it also touched upon the kind of free love nature that I, I, I feel like was more prevalent in this era. You know, they talked about how, you know, I have a husband, I have a wife, but that nature in this film just felt kind of normal almost, mm-hmm. where it was just kind of a thing that just happens. I admired its kind of moral restraint and um, avoidance of melodrama. Mm. In that sense. And these are, you know, two adults, two consenting adults engaging in something. Because it, I also like films that, yeah, essentially just avoid dramatic cliches. And, you know, there are many ways to tell this kind of story where essentially becomes a melodrama about adultery or infidelity. But Alan Renee's priorities thematically are very different, you know. It is a meditation, Mm -hmm. the passage of time and memory, um, more than a comment on the public opinion and the morality of these characters. It is a massively beloved film across Letterboxd. It's in, so Criterion Channel recently joined Letterboxd, which is very exciting for us. They are curating incredible lists on the daily, which are, um, I mean, that's a a brilliant HQ to follow today in order mm. to open up your filmmaking watch lists. They have a list called Questioning Love, and Hiroshima Monomore is on that. It's in yes. lots and lots of 90 minutes or less lists. But, you know, what's interesting about that is, you know, people are looking for a sort of short hit as opposed to uh, Jean Dielman, which we'll get to. It's in uh, Directors Visit Japan. It's in Conversations on Film, Memory and Yearning, Socialism and Leftism, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. and a list of atomic weapons. And of course, it turns up on a bunch of horny lists. So yeah, it is, it's definitely a letterboxed fave. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I want to ask about how it links to Lingua Franca and, you know, going back to those beautiful entwined limbs scenes that we get in the opening of the film. It feels really like a companion piece to your film. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, having also just rewatched Hiroshima Monoma recently, I'm realizing now that besides, you know, the, the shots of the intertwined limbs and the sensuousness of the imagery, it's, you know, it opens with this French woman essentially ruminating, you know, and the voiceover in French against a geography of Japan. 
in the same way Lingua Franca opens with my character, Olivia, you know, speaking in Cebuano against, you know, juxtaposed with images set in Coney Island. So typical, you know, typically American landscape. And it's about kind of the, a foreigner's perspective um, of the strange new country that she finds herself in. And it's so interesting because I also got that inspiration from a, a Chantal Ackerman film, which is News From Home. But I'm realizing now that Rene also, you know, influenced me in that sense. And it's fascinating how certain films that have, you know, kind of been influential and North Stars for an emerging and a budding filmmaker like myself, who's learning the language and the vocabulary of cinema, like these formative films, for me, you know, their influence unconsciously emerge, you know, in the work that I do eventually. And this is apparent in, yeah, even the opening passage of Hiroshima and more in Lingua Franca. Just as an aside, uh, if you want to find out, and this is what this podcast is all about, if you want to find out how many fans a film has, you jump on Letterboxd. If you're on the web, you look at the histogram, you know, where the, the ratings graph. If you're on the app, you tap the watched by section and select the fans tab. And this is a neat way to find out what other like-minded film lovers on Letterboxd um, might also be watching. So it's sort of a way to find other friends. So at this moment in time, Lingua Franca has a solid 17 fans. So these are the people, not who have rated it five stars, of which there are many, but who have added it to their four favourites. Yeah. And one of those people, Ave, I particularly love her review. She writes... Seeing a trans woman on screen make love is so, so, so important to me. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with Isabel Sandoval. Wow. And what's interesting about that is there, it, it is very similar to other Letterboxd reviews of your film, um, which is that people are literally obsessed with you. How does that feel? <laughs> it's so funny because like some of um, uh, the Letterboxd members that comment on Liga Franca like treat it like, a DM, like a direct message to me, like, <laughs> like they're talking to me through their letterbox reviews. We should also call out that people that want to check out Lingua Franca can do so on Netflix, at least in the in the US. That's how yes. I watched it. You mentioned reviews for the movie as being a sort of a DM, but I always love to hear from filmmakers yeah. how they use letterbox for their own works. You know, how do you use Letterbox to hear what people are saying about your movie? How do you how do you treat it? I'm very grateful that a platform like Letterbox exists because you know, you really get the sense of how cinephilia is still alive, you know, and very much thriving. Um, and it's not just limited like literature about cinema is not just limited to the ones published by magazines like Sight and Sound and film comment. And there are a lot of, you know, genuine and, you know, hardcore film lovers that really take the time and really think through the films that they watch and experience and document, you know, that experience, that cinematic experience in their letterbox reviews. Uh, there are a handful of reviews about Lingua Franca that are you know, quite lengthy and truly, you know, thoughtful and elegantly written that I feel 
is just as worthy of publication as mm. the actual published reviews. And for that, you know, it's always a thrill and a joy to read letterboxed reviews of my, not just my work, but other films, even though maybe they don't like the film because you can see their thought process of how they right. engage with films and how it's both an intellectual and emotional experience for them. Mm. I also just want to say I'm a fangirl of the way you fangirl letterboxed reviews. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> the way you pick out the ones that are sort of like either horny hot takes or when you discover through a letterboxed review that your genre is apparently sensual neorealism. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hugely, it's massively appreciated. Yeah. I feel like this past six months, my Twitter account has become kind of like an indirect criterion and letterboxed stan account. <laughs> 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 it's time to move on to the second of your four favorites. Yes. There's still sex in it, but I, I guess we're moving away from the horny and the sensual towards the transactional. This is Jean Dielman, Vangtoi Quai du Commerce, Mille Quatre Vingts, Brussels. Or nice. in English, Jean Dielman, 23, Quai du Commerce, 1080, Brussels. This is Chantal Ackerman's 1975, three and a half hour long opus about a lonely, widowed housewife played by Delphine Seyrig, who does her daily chores, takes care of her apartment where she lives with her teenage son, and turns the occasional trick to make ends meet. Slowly, and there is no fast way to watch this film, her ritualized daily routines begin to fall apart. Yes. Now this is sitting at a 4.2 out of 5 star average. It's got 708 fans. It is the sixth highest rated film by a female director on Letterboxd. And it is um, on our all-time top 250. And it is Ackerman's highest rated and most popular movie. So why is it in your top four? Um, truly an all-timer. You know, this is, I love films that are a paradox, you know, that are, a film of opposites like you see on the surface it seems quite quiet and observational and you know leisurely and you know quite naturalistic but underneath the surface it's a film about you know that's increasingly brutal and suffocating and oppressive and it's about different kinds of tyrannies, the tyrannies of domesticity. Um, and it's such a powerful feminist film without being preachy or didactic. Um, and it makes its point simply by observing John Dealman, you know, over the course of three days, going about her daily rituals um, and her routine. And because it observes her within this, you know, habitat and within this space, you know, with such kind of like detail, almost microscopic detail, we are forced to pay attention to the tiniest and seemingly most mundane gesture. Um, so that, you know, as 
you know, these moments and these rituals accumulate, you know, over the course of these three days, any minor disruption or deviation carries such monumental, dramatic weight. There was a, a brilliant review um, Adam Kempenar of Film Spotting wrote on Letterboxd where he mm-hmm. figures out um, that the second trick she turns, the second visitor, the second encounter with one of her clients is the inciting key to the ending. And I I guess I must have, I don't know, I was actually doing my laundry while I was watching it because I thought that that would be <laughs> immersive cinema, right? Yeah. Uh, so I went back and uh, remembered that, yeah, he's basically to blame for the potatoes being overcooked. And, um, and anyone who's seen the film will understand what a monumental yeah. fuck up that was. <laughs> but it's very, very hard to... Describe why committing to Jean Dielman fully is so important, isn't it? When when the basic synopsis is a woman just goes about her daily routine. And I think, you know, sh- what's even astounding about Ackerman's achievement here is that she made this when she was 25. Oh my God. I, saw, I couldn't believe that when I saw that. I, I found that on Wiki and then I watched an interview she looked like she could be 19 in the in the interview. I couldn't believe she was right. so young when she made this movie. I was like blown away. Just the status you have. I'm going to make a three and a half hour movie about the, the yeah. suffocation of domesticity. <laughs> and she did. I was like, okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's made with kind of the, the seeming emotional distance um, of a documentarian. But what's also very impressive about this and what's um, truly radical about this is that, you know, she essentially made a film that just is about a woman going through her daily rituals and to consider that worthy of cinematic document. I have to say, and for pandemic reasons, I am uh, solo parenting for long stretches of time and I felt so completely seen in so many of these scenes. I have, you know, I have to do this job. I have to get a five-year-old to school. So I have, and I, and my coffee of choice is pour over. So, you know, there are many, many similarities, but honestly, if the coffee goes wrong in the morning and there's not quite enough time to make the lunchbox, something will get broken. There was a week, two weeks ago where I smashed three different, you know, items of crockery and um, glassware. And it just, I watching these scenes, I felt, and this was what, 1975, it, it feels like nothing has changed in so many ways about women's daily existence. And as Ackerman describes, the importance of ritual to bring peace and to lessen anxiety. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, I've never seen a movie like this before. And if anyone is, this is also, I think all the movies we're talking about, with the exception of Punch Drunk Love, is on the Criterion channel right now. And I'd never experienced a movie like this before. And some of the scenes that jumped out at me were her conversations with her son as he was going to bed uh, about, you know, walking in on his parents making love. And then her reaction to some of the conversation uh, where she said, Making love, as you call it, is merely a detail. Les ballets, tu sais, ça n'avait aucune importance, ça ne faisait rien. Et tu sais faire l'amour, comme tu dis, c'était un détail. Et puis je t'avais. Et puis il n'était pas si laid que ça. I thought some of those conversations were so crazy deep. It's just from an insight into her thinking. Yeah. 
and I think this is Mitchell at Letterboxd's number one movie of all time. Yes, and it he, is. So I tweeted is. that like, you know, we're talking about these movies. I got a few replies. People were like, oh my God, you're talking about this movie. I can't wait. Yeah. There's a ton of people that feel the same way. So this is, it was an amazing experience uh, watching this. So by all means. Let's move from a film with incredibly sensual sex scenes to a film with extremely transactional sex scenes to a film with none whatsoever. Yes. But one of the sexiest films of all time. In the Mood for Love. This is number 36 of all time on Letterboxd. Wong Kar Wai's most popular and highest rated film. The number one film from the whole Hong Kong, China region on Letterboxd. Sits on a bunch of lists called Fills the Void, Soft and Slow, Loneliness in Neon Cities, and um, many, many more. Anyway, it is, it is hugely beloved and uh, including by you. Tell us about In the Mood for Love and your love for it. It's funny because when you think about it on, you know, on their very basic premise in the mood for love and Hiroshima more, which is about illicit love affairs, you know, set in Asia um, in a period setting could have ended up being the same movie. But because of, again, the auteur behind the camera, um, making the film, they end up as, you know, wildly different films. And what I love about In the Mood for Love, it's similar, again, on a very, very um, rudimentary level, it's similar to Jean Delman in that it's a movie of paradoxes. Um, it's a movie of opposites. It is about romantic repression, in a style that you would consider visually and musically extravagant and maximalist. Um, mm. And it's similar also to the style of Dog Cert in that sense, because, you know, his characters are also very emotionally repressed, but, you know, he is very exuberant with the art direction, the saturated colors, the music, and... I consider In the Mood for Love to be the pinnacle of sensuous cinema, I think, in the 21st century. I think that is, uh, that might be a bold statement Very to bold. make, but for me, you know, sensuousness is not necessarily about sex mm. or, you know, or showing, you know, characters, you know, in a sexual encounter. It's, it's about kind of that, the energy, the sexual and the erotic, sensuous energy, which is at its highest and most powerful, let's say, just before orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> so the most sensuous films, I would say, are those that are, that engage in some kind of cinematic edging. <laughs> <laughs> now we can you know, <laughs> you know, they usher the audience to the precipice of that, you know, sensual satisfaction and just frustrates it at the right moment to leave a lingering and haunting impression and impact. Yeah. That will make this film unforgettable. 
I mean, without without spoilers for anyone who who still <laughs> hasn't seen In the Mood for Love, that those last few scenes back in the building, oh my God, that's like, yeah, that's hey. edging if ever I saw it. When I first saw this movie, I think this past year, also easily one of the most gorgeous movies I've ever seen. Yes. And the colors, everything pops. I think you can see, anyone talks about In the Mood for Love, they'll post screenshots, you know, of the most gorgeous scenes in this movie. And... I was going, I was about to reference a Tom Cruise movie because you mentioned <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Don't I think he it. he don't calls himself it. a a pleasure delayer in Vanilla Sky, but really visually that's what this movie does. It doesn't it doesn't incorporate any of that stuff. Even their spouses, their partners are not shown at all in this movie. You know, obviously a very conscious decisions decision. And you had said I think on a uh, piece that you had done for the Criterion. If the lover, this is a spoiler, so if anyone has not seen this movie, mm-hmm. maybe quick fast forward, but if the lovers in these movies stayed together in the end, they would not be the classics that they are remembered for being now. And I think the the delaying, the edging, right until the end, it pulls it back and it just leaves you with that lasting yeah. memory of what was and what never could be. Yeah, I think the best, you know, the most powerful sensuous films leave the audience with the blue balls, so to speak. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, the sensual cinema canon is a canon of the one that got away. Can we get that on the cover of the next Criterion release? Can we get that quote from you on like a little circle sticker on the bottom? (laughs) Before we dive into your last film, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love, I have a question Mm -hmm. about um, edging and touching. Uh, And that is, (laughs) you've just been in Cannes. Uh, like a real yes. life, real in-person film festival. And on Twitter, you posted a photo of you touching Tilda Swinton. Oh my God, tell us everything. Have you showered yet? <laughs> oh my God, yes. Yes, Queen <laughs> Tilda, who had three movies in Cannes, actually. Um, Amazing. Yeah, I loved, I, I've seen two of her three films and I loved, you know, the two that I saw. I loved uh, Memoria. That was not my question. Sure. That's not my question. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I've washed. It's fine. Oh, you have washed. Oh, I mean, man. I did for three days, though. I did for three days. But, you know. It's wonderful to hear that, that two of her three films uh, have your stamp of approval. Um, can we also talk about, because you you are also a um, provocateur of nun cinema, uh, Benedetta. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about our sweet boy, Paul, Paul Verhoeven. Oh, yes. Slim is praying right now. I'm a huge right Paul <laughs> fan. I've only recently yeah. come into his later works. I just recently saw L. So what was the experience like seeing his new, his latest at Cannes? It was, you know, a hoot, really, Benedetta. And especially coming from, you know, growing up in a country that's terribly and neurotically Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're used to a lot of Films about religion, especially about Catholicism, that are very self-serious and, you know, self-important and somber. To Verhoeven essentially vandalized (laughs) Catholicism and, you know, gave it the campy, campy treatment. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was also truly quite subversive, especially when it's taking this story that's based on actual historical events in Italy and 
giving it a lighter, campier spin. And that, you know, Catholicism should not be taking it that seriously because if this was, you know, a story told with a straight face, it would really be about the abuses of the Catholic Church against, you know, women. And it would be a lot more cruel and punishing. I, I, I grew up also in the Catholic Church so you, oh, snap. so I'm well aware of everything that goes on there. How many Hail Marys are we, <laughs> how many Hail Marys are we saying after this? But we, one of your quotes, which I think will get a lot of people interested also in seeing this movie, I think was from a tweet. Why shouldn't Catholicism get its own showgirls? And that's a great plug to see that movie. Like, okay, yes, yes I need to see this movie yeah. right now. Yeah. IFC films. Yeah. <laughs> you can use that just pay me <laughs> I love that love it so much and it's it's a chance for me to just um, fangirl you once again and say that actually in your Sensual Cinema essay for us you've um, very generously given us the script for the um, for the gorgeous lovemaking scene my personal favourite Lingua Franca scene was when uh, Olivia and Trixie are sitting in church discussing what kind of husband right. they're going to find for Olivia next. And it's like, you're going to make sure it's a handsome one. And I just had this, like all of that, there's just so much tied up in that one scene. First of all, you're in church. So like good Filipina girls, you are, you know, continuing to recognize your faith in a foreign country, but yeah. you're trans girls. You're talking about, you know, illegal marriages to get to secure your <laughs> green cards. And you're talking about the fact that they need to be hot. You know, it's like, yeah. there's a whole lot of brilliant sort of layers there that Paul Verhoeven would appreciate. Watching Benedetta inspired me to make a re- you know, sequel to Lingua Franca where Trixie and I actually got ourselves <laughs> to a nunnery. <laughs> <laughs> because we talk about it in that scene, remember? Yes, you do. You do. It's genius. Oh my God. I love that. All right. It is time. It is time for your fourth. The big one. The big one. Yes. Your most favorite film. A film amongst the four films where, um, spoilers, the lovers actually get together. So, you know, bringing it all back home. Yeah. We're beyond edging. We're we're into the full romance of the thing, uh, but not without some um, volatility, violence, social awkwardness. This is the Adam Sandler starring Punch Drunk Love by Paul Thomas Anderson from wow. 2002. It has a four out of five star average and it has a whopping three and a half thousand fans on Letterboxd, of which you are one. Wow. Punch Drunk Love is really just a testament to... Paul Thomas Anderson's virtuosity as an auteur. And it's, I think, a masterpiece in juggling a lot of tones and emotional registers. And because, you know, in the hands of less talented filmmakers, a film like this would just seem disjointed, you know, and um, totally inconsistent and schizophrenic, which is it kind of is. Mm-hmm. But... Anderson is able to combine all these elements and still have one, you can say coherent, you know, emotionally coherent film. Um, And this kind of juggling of different tones and moods, he does it in a number of elements, both with the music by John Bryan. Um, You know, there are musical cues that are more kind of golden age of Hollywood, you know, romantic music and there is something something that sounds more electronic you know and more 
more modern and it's also you know a testament to Adam Sandler's work um, that he also has to juggle the shifting emotional registers in the film um, where something that's more kind of low-key romantic to something that's more kind of frazzled and um, anxious, you know, which the Safdie brothers uses to yeah. great effect in Uncut Gems. Yes, yeah. This actually reminds me, and I might have said that in my Criterion Top 10 as well, this reminds me of um, The Apartment by Billy Wilder and how very adroitly you know, Billy Wilder also juggles between those discordant, you know, tones in the film. There's a passage halfway through the film, Shirley MacLaine, you know, tries to commit suicide and it's a very devastating, you know, moment. But, you know, Billy Wilder seamlessly introduces kind of a slapstick and a forcical energy into that scene. And so the end result is that the very um, seemingly incongruous, you know, playing off of these different emotional registers ultimately makes the scene in the whole movie come off as melancholic. Mm. Um, and that's the same, I think, emotional destination that Paul Thomas Anderson takes us to. I was talking to Isabel right before we started, and this is also one of my favorite movies. This is an instant five banger, as I call it. But the, so I have the Blu-ray of this from Criterion, and I also have the—I think I bought the Apartment Blu-ray with the same purchase uh, for both oh, wow. of these. Yeah. And I was working at a video store when I first saw this when this came out, I think in 2002. And I think this might be my first introduction to a kind of auteur experience watching a movie. This might have been my first PTA PTA movie. And if you haven't kind of been exposed to a lot of these movies, this could be like a really eye-opening film. Yeah. You, you talked about in your, in your criterion about how it's intoxicating and very experimental. And this could have failed so largely with anyone else. But when you get a, like a person with such skill that, and you just end up with something just completely magical and so rare, in my opinion, that you can get something like yeah. this. And it's so fun to go back and celebrate. I have reservations. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me, Gemma. How many Hail Marys? Uh, <laughs> Gemma's also going to be in the I, confessional after this episode. I want to say this is a 2002 movie. If this was a 2021 movie, I, I, I think that there would be other people with reservations as well because I think that we've, uh, we've learned a lot about toxic masculinity and what it looks like and I... I struggle with, I mean, everyone, everyone deserves love. Mm. I struggle with such a violent man being a romantic lead. I really, really struggle with it. And I recognize at the same time that this is a film from 2002. I recognize that he's a character with a lot of sisters who are straight up abusive towards him. You know, they use, right. use slurs that undermine his masculinity at, at every point. But I... I accept that PTA pulls it off ultimately in that scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman where 
all of that toxic masculinity is 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 dialed back at the pivotal moment. It's almost like it it kind of has that, you know, when you put two magnets together, you know, they kind of like push each other apart, like at that scene towards the end yeah. where they're both yeah. trying to oh use God, that is... masculinity against each other and it's just yeah. it doesn't compute what's happening in front of them and they both just yeah. go their, their opposite directions. Yeah, yeah, it sort of cancels out. And and there's also an element with Emily Watson's character and I I adore her. I'll watch her and Anything, including this, but there is an element of, um, and I know it's a, a term we're not supposed to use anymore, but an element of manic pixiness in that we don't learn a lot about her. You know, we just learn that she really likes Adam Sandler's character. Mm. And that's apparently all we need to know. And again, you know, I forgive it for 2002, but I would say that, yeah, my, for me, Paul Thomas Anderson peaked with the Phantom with um, Phantom Thread. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> the Phantom Menace. I was like, Phantom I didn't know P- PTA worked on the Phantom Menace. Phantom wow. Menace. <laughs> so how many Hail Marys, how many Hail Marys do I have to say based no. on my punch drunk love reservations? 10 Our Fathers, 30 Hail Marys, I think, uh, before oh. the next episode. <laughs> we we were, you know, crunching the numbers. I think Gemma also has another stat, but your most popular review is for A New Leaf. Wow. Elaine okay. May has a very particular and very wry comic sensibility. Hollywood doesn't deserve her. So what is your elevator pitch for, for people that haven't checked out this film yet off the top of your head? You know, A New Leaf, I think the most talented, you know, tourists are the ones that create a very particular world, you know, and milieu in terms of its like tone and sensibility and have the audacity and the command to kind of just draw us and pull us into their world and pay attention to them as they tell the story the way that they want to tell it. Um, That's what I got from A New Leaf. It has a very, very distinct comic sensibility and that's true about you know all the directors that we consider auteurs and that when you're watching their film you know you're watching a film by this director um and it could be through a combination of you know visual cues um you know on the surface and of course it's not just that but for example with Wes Anderson for instance one frame you know it's a Wes Anderson film and it's the same way for instance with um Roy Anderson, um, who's also very visually oriented, and Aki Kurosmaki, who's a Scandinavian filmmaker as well. And, you know, like with Scorsese, you, for most of his films at least, you, there is kind of a thematic through line. That's also something that I experience. It's like being drawn into the strange, idiosyncratic, comically virtuous world of um, Elaine May in The New Leaf. Let's talk briefly about Filipino cinema because Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've caught up with the news that on our halfway 2021 highest rated, 25 highest rated films of this year so far, the uh, number one and number two films were both Filipino films. Okay. Number one is Cleaners. Yes. Yes. By Glenn Barrett. And number two is Ode to Nothing by Dwayne. Baltazar. Yeah. So um, what have you got to say about that as a, as a fellow Filipino filmmaker? I think it's just amazing. I've seen Ode to Nothing um, and it's a remarkable, remarkable film. I have yet to see Cleaner. So I hope it gets, you know, distribution stateside 
You talked earlier about the Philippines culture being a very Catholic and often quite morally repressed culture. What do you think that modern Filipino cinema is doing to, to, to bring about a new way of looking at Filipino life? What's very exciting about these two films, you know, you know, rating as high as they have for this year so far is that both these films kind of stray from the typical aesthetic of art house Philippine cinema and that, and I hate to use this term like poverty porn, for instance, um, but, you know, cleaners from what I've seen and read of it is that it's just, you know, formally very playful and quite dazzling. Um, it's truly experimental um, in terms, I think it's just like the color as, you know, and Ode to Nothing is also quite different. It's very um, restrained and austere, but there's also a comic sensibility running through it underneath. And I would love to have, you know, more Filipino films that truly go against the grain of um, the established aesthetic of Philippine cinema to get more audiences, you know, and to get seen more widely and recognized for the achievement that they have. I think maybe to close out, there's one last topic that I had to ask, which is something that might be coming down the line from you soon. Mm -hmm. Tropical Gothic, which is described as having surreal elements that riffs on Hitchcock's vertigo. Can you leave us with anything to whet our appetite for a future release? Yes. So Tropical Gothic is my fourth and most ambitious feature. I consider Lingua Franca kind of a transitional film for me and that it's still rooted in some kind of social realism. But it's also the film where I'm truly starting to find my voice and incorporating lyricism and poetry and sensuousness into my work. And with Tropical Gothic, I just take that to the extreme. Um, <laughs> it's about a... It's set in the 16th century in the Philippines, very early on during the Spanish colonial regime. It is an allegory about colonialism and imperialism. And it's so when the Spaniards arrive, they seize the property and the farmland from the natives. And so Tropical Gothic is about this native Filipina priestess who pretends to be possessed by the spirit of her Spanish master's dead bride in order to psychologically manipulate him into giving back her farmland. God. Whoa. And <laughs> aside from being influenced by Hitchcock's Vertigo, it's like Jane Campion's The Piano, but it's from the perspective of the Maori natives. I feel a palm door coming on. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, kind of my logline for it is that it's a vampire film without oh my god. oh my god it's already in my watch list so i'm sure it's in most people's watch list on letterboxd if you're listening yeah. is it sensual slapstick adjacent <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's surreal sensuousness <laughs> Woo! Thanks so much for listening to The Letterboxd Show and thanks to our guest this episode, Isabel Sandoval, for sharing her love of her favourite movies. 
Please read Isabel's essay for us on sensual cinema. It features the whole horny section of script from her latest feature, Lingua Franca. The link for the essay is in the show notes. Don't forget, you can follow Gemma, Slim, that's me, and our Letterbox HQ page on Letterbox using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to Composing Dynamo's moniker for the theme music of Vampiros, Dance Attack. If you are enjoying the show and have guest ideas, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production. And that's it. We've edged right up to the end of the episode. <laughs> we'll leave you to sort yourselves out. Oh, my. Joyce and American Airlines got together for this promotion. If you buy any 10 of Healthy Joyce products, they will award you 500 frequent flyer miles. When this special coupon, they'll up it to 1,000 miles. So I think they're trying to push their teriyaki chicken, which is $1.79. But I went to the supermarket and I looked around and I saw that they had pudding, 25 cents a cup. Comes in packages of four. But in Insanely, the barcodes are on the individual cups. So, a quarter a cup, say you bought $2.50 worth, that's worth 500 miles. With the coupon, it's 1,000 miles. It's a marketing mistake, but I'm taking advantage of it. If you were to spend $3,000, that would get you a million frequent flyer miles. You would never have to pay for a ticket the rest of your life. So you, you bought all that pudding so that you could get free compliance. I know, yes. That's insane. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Ooh.